As you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, we're really picking up right in the middle of an episode here where he saw last week we were reading, he came looking for donkeys. That's all he reason he came. And he'll be going back home knowing that he's going to be crowned king of Israel. Not exactly what he came looking for. Chapter 9, though, let us in on some potential foreboding signs, maybe some red flags here and there. They weren't big ones. Nevertheless, their connection to the rest of the Scriptures seemed to be a bit too coincidental to be nothing for the author to be mentioning. First, we just found that he was a, a man of wealth, or he was a man of power or influence. And also, we were told this fact along with uh, the idea that he was handsome, and so the idea is that by worldly standards, he was a desirable man, which Samuel, the prophet, flat out told him that that, that's what he was in verse 20. We're also told that Saul was a head taller than any other person, and while height is not a sin, thank God, um, the only other people that were told of in the scriptures, the only other people were told of of their height, is actually... Israel's enemies. Uh, we're told that the Canaanites were giants, said the spies. And Goliath is also described similarly in a few chapters in 1 Samuel. And we also get the idea that Saul may have not even known Samuel too well. 1 Samuel chapter 3 tells us that Saul was known throughout all the land. But then also interestingly, the author goes out of his way to tell us that before coming to meet Samuel... Saul was educated on how sacrifices work for the priesthood. <laughs> and that is actually going to be a defining situation of him misusing sacrifices. That's going to be the downfall of his kingship. Nevertheless, despite all these red flags, the author is going through equally great measures for us to understand that it is God who appointed Saul to this very task. The people wanted Saul... God was not okay with this idea, he says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that he's being rejected. Nevertheless, as I have been saying throughout many weeks, God is conceding, and in fact, he is divinely appointing Saul to the kingship. We're going to cover chapter 10 today, but let's just open now for the first nine verses of chapter 10, so I invite you to stand one last time for the reading of the Lord's Word, beginning in chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, going through verse 9. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. That's Saul, of course. And kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor, 
Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now these signs meet, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. Let's pray. Father, um, as I study your word and as I prepared this message and just keeping, keeping in my mind the kind of person that Saul is and Saul will be, and Father, it shows me that you operate, it seems, on our timeline, giving us chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity to either be yours or be the world's. Help us to take notice of who Saul is now, all the things you are doing to make him prepared to be a good king of Israel, and help us to keep in mind who he becomes so that we too can examine our own hearts and our own lives and realize the choices and the consequences that come with those choices that we do every day. Help us to be kept and guarded by you through faith so that we might be pure and blameless before you. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the forgiveness of sins, that we do have an advocate every time we do sin. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are present using your word today. We ask that it, it would be he that is speaking, glorifying God, and building up the saints for your name's sake. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe you can identify with this in this time. Do you ever pinch yourself in the middle of some tragedy, some catastrophe? You ever have those moments where you have to tell yourself, okay, this is happening. I had a moment like that in the 2015 fire out there on the fire line watching entire trees go up in flames, <laughs> getting down on my face, uh, knowing that a helicopter overhead was dumping water and I might get hit, which I did. <laughs> this is happening. Okay, wow. Kind of a surreal feeling. Maybe it's happened a few times under the coronavirus and, and in a bigger sense, it took a while to realize that this isn't as isolated maybe as the fire was. This is something that is shared by the entire world, a worldwide new normal. Okay, this is happening. And there's no stopping it. There's no, let's go back and try plan B. Let's go try another route. Rather, there, there comes a moment when you're pinching yourself and it's really happening for better or for worse, for success or for failure, and it seems like in those moments, every decision made is something that feels more significant than as, per se, you just deciding what's for breakfast. Rather, it seems every 
decision seems to have more solid consequences and maybe the stress seems a little bit high and the pressure is on and the heat is on and and you have to lie in whatever bed that you're making. That's what's happening here in Israel. (laughs) It's kind of scary to watch. It's a train wreck to watch, but God is giving Israel what they want. Again, Saul came to find donkeys and he's met Samuel. He's dined with Samuel last chapter in kind of almost a pre-coronation banquet at the, the high place of worship. Saul's servant was told to go home and he stayed back with Samuel. In verse 1 here again we read that Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? It's happening. <laughs> Saul is becoming king. He's being anointed here, and as this train wreck begins, I want you to hear from the get-go that the responsibility to be, for better or for worse, is in Saul's hands. Samuel begins reminding him that the Lord has anointed him to be prince over his people. Now, we talked about this last week, that Samuel is more than likely not using the term king but prince or ruler or commander, because God is still king. Saul was not chosen by his own want or design, but in that choosing, he's given the title prince, ruler, not sovereign. Saul is chosen on God's terms. It's up to Saul. Is he going to abide by those terms? (laughs) It's up to Saul. God tells him through Samuel from the get-go that he's appointed, appointed to reign and defend God's people from their enemies. Verse 1, excuse me, or save them. That's his task. And again, we move back to God's appointment, his divine appointing to this Saul, to this task, so much so in the fact that signs will take place to show Saul This is indeed God talking. (laughs) Does that make sense? Samuel has not chosen Saul arbitrarily. Samuel doesn't have something up his sleeve. He wasn't paid off to get Saul. Rather, Saul needs to know that the divine hand of God is choosing him here. God is on the move. What this should do is humble him. Are you humbled at all? What God has done to choose you, believer. Even if you are an unbeliever, nevertheless, it should humble you to know that, that Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 4 through 10, He chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And I invite you to go home, read that and understand it, or else I'd take an entire sermon to, or 15 sermons to unpack that. But God chose you in Christ. He put a plan in motion before the world began. And in fact, we have been wowed as we study this here in Samuel that God has incorporated into his conceding to Israel that he's still going to bring Christ through that. That even though God did not want Israel to forsake him and seek a king like the rest of the world, God nevertheless is going to bring David to Israel and David will forever be a foreshadow to the greater King David, Christ. It should humble us. It should move us. It should leave us awestruck to know that God chose us in Christ. And he chose Saul. He said to Samuel, Saul is to be king. And Samuel is coming to Saul, who has not even applied for the position, right? Saul never applied for the position. He never registered with a political party. He signed no documents. Rather, here's Samuel saying to Saul, Here is Israel. (laughs) Rule it. Take immense power and be a leader. Saul is chosen. The signs say it. Prophetic predictions are given and then we're told they happen. But then God is moving to even greater lengths here. God's not laying a huge burden on Saul or a huge task on Saul and then saying, try your hardest. (laughs) We read rather in verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And then we see this beginning with verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of the God, Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Here's how I see this. God has not only conceded, Okay, take a king. He's giving Israel the kind of king they want with every possible chance that that king being successful, being in the best scenario ever. Here's here's what I mean. Do you ever concede and do what somebody else wants, being all in? (laughs) If I'm honest, I'd be quick to not give it my all. I might grumble. I might, you know, second guess and still think, you know, if we were doing it my way, it'd be good. (laughs) I'm going to intentionally do it your way horribly, so you will relent. And say, man, I wish you had done it your way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't hear that. I don't at all see that in what God is doing here. Do you? The scandalous mercy that our king has. The king of Israel, the king that Israel wants, not the king that God wants, but the king that Israel wants is prophesying. God gave him another heart. Now let's consider this, that elsewhere in the Bible, namely in the book of Judges, we see that the Spirit of the Lord rush upon people like Samson. 
who by far never seems to have anything remotely righteous or humble said about him, if you read the book of Judges. The Spirit rushes upon Samuel to do particular tasks, interestingly enough, to war against the Philistines at an earlier time. So some say, well, let's not misread the author of Samuel here. All that is happening is that the Spirit is acting upon Saul, and it's changing Saul and making him fit and ready and able to be a commander in an army. That's it. Well, I certainly agree that that's a big part of it. I personally think it goes deeper than that. Ezekiel says that the one who has a heart of stone, a cold, hard heart, will have it taken out and receive a heart of flesh, a soft heart receptive to God and his ways. Ezekiel says that a new spirit comes into a receptive one. Jeremiah says that the new covenant looks like having God's laws on our heart and being obedient to him from the heart. And with a new heart, a new birth, Jesus says people begin to see the kingdom of God. People are surprised at Saul. They consider him among the prophets. And I think it's for more reasons than Saul just being transformed and crafted into a military commander or a king. But I wonder, and I feel like that Saul is showing signs of godliness here. If he was unknowing of Samuel and a little bit careless of God in his words and ways before Saul became looking for donkeys, maybe the fact that God has chosen him and has given him a kingdom has softened his heart. Maybe Saul is a little bit more receptive to what God has to say. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further because this will show itself again before we finish this chapter. Some of you know that I have this weird idea that I think the Bible happens to be about Jesus. Well, Jesus says it is, and I won't go through those texts again right now. You're welcome. But in any case, it's interesting about Jesus. Over in Matthew 13, beginning with verse 54, we see Jesus comes to his hometown, and he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished, and he and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now this is what I mean when I say the Bible is about Jesus. We read Saul, or at least I just read Saul. Many of you are like, why did you just go to that passage? I don't, maybe you're saying that. I don't know. But I read Saul, and I'm a small way. I'm reminded of Jesus. I'm not saying that in every possible way Saul fit the mold. But by virtue of Saul being king and Jesus being king, and Saul prophesying much to the surprise, if not dismay, of his own people, which we do pick up on that later in this chapter, So Jesus, in a greater way, prophesies to the dismay of his own people. Saul, in fact, in more truer ways than Jesus, was an unlikely prophet. We know Jesus to be sinless from birth, given to us by God because he is God. Saul has raised red flags for us, so we too might be surprised that, hey, he prophesies. This does two things for me, recognizing this. Again, it makes me believe that Saul had a time or duration. We don't know how long, but Scripture leads me to believe that Saul was at some point in time among the righteous remnant of Israel. He was righteous, what we would call saved. I believe 
God empowers all righteous and believing people with His Spirit to be such. And apart from the grace of God, apart from God supernaturally working in me and showing me grace and and faithfulness to my yielded spirit, I too would be Saul. I too would be Samson. That's how we're saved, folks. We receive the kingdom given to us, chosen for us in Christ, and then we are empowered to receive that. We're supernaturally touched to receive and live in that. Saul had a time among the faithful. That's the first recognition I have. The second is much grimmer. Because then this makes the fall of Saul that much more traffic, traffic, tragic. (laughs) We'll get there when we get there. But for now, know that God is giving him grace. And again, God is being abundantly gracious in his concession. He's not only giving Israel the king they want. In fact, we read in Hosea that he's giving them a king in his anger. Hosea says, even so, he's giving them the best version of Saul that reality offers. He's God's holy intervention. Sadly, that's going to be wasted as far as Saul is concerned, not because God wasn't good enough, but because Saul was not yielded enough. We'll talk about that again when we get there. We continue in verse 14. We come to this weird intermission, actually, that even commentators scratch their head on. It's almost as if the author backs out and he throws in a conversation that Kevin has with his dad about what groceries to eat, and then we go back to the story. That's kind of how weird it feels as you read it. We come back to verse 14. It says, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And then we go back to the story. Okay. A few ideas I had. First, it could be that unlike Joseph, the son of Jacob, you remember that story, who blurted out his dreams of being king to his brothers, which only served to anger them and incite their jealousy more, Saul had a bit more tact. Maybe he's saying, maybe it would be better if my uncle heard from the from the whole king story from Samuel, not me. And so maybe this conversation and Saul's reluctance and hiding that's going to show up later in the story at his coronation is meant to reveal to us that either Saul is showing more humility or modesty or he's showing reservations. But the Bible is about Jesus. Interesting that Jesus kept a messianic secret before his coronation, namely the cross. If you read in John 17, what does Jesus say over and over that he's about to be glorified at the cross? Jesus, I believe, sees this in many ways as his coronation. He tells his disciples at the Last Supper that his entering the kingdom is the crucifixion. He's saying that I'm not going to eat drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. But until that final week, what was Jesus doing? He was doing ministry in secret. He was telling people not to report that they had been healed. He was telling people not to reveal to anyone who he is. In this small way, I feel like Saul is again pointing us to King Jesus. We again see more instances of Saul shrinking back and and being silent about his kingship here at the end of the chapter. We move on though in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Now, in a bygone age, before coronavirus, we were here at Mizpah a few chapters earlier. 
In fact, it was where Samuel called people together to have a national day of, of mourning and repentance about 20 years prior. Ironically, as they were having this nationwide service of repentance at Mizpah, the Philistines were gathering, thinking about Israel, that, that maybe Israel's gathering at Mizpah to attack us, and so the, the Lord defeat the Philistines then supernaturally. We look back at verse 10 of that chapter and we see, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So kind of this sad irony that 20 years later, with the Philistines again at the proverbial gates, the nation is gathering at Mizpah, but this time it's not to cry out in repentance and have a worship service to their King Yahweh, but rather it's to solidify their rejection of kingship and crown Saul as prince. So verse 18 back here in Samuel 10. And he that is Samuel said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Like I said, a, a sad irony. Even though God is doing all He can to give them an unblemished Saul, an unblemished kind of king that they want, He's still conceding and He's still saying, you've rejected me. You, and I'm following through with it. The train wreck is, is moving forward, no turning back. Pinch me, is this finally happening sort of thing. And then verse 20, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So Saul is, is singled out by Lot. Again, we, even though Samuel has met prior with Saul to tell him that, hey, you're going to be king, now God is orchestrating the Lots to let everyone know in all the presence, hey, Saul is being chosen by divine appointment. Interesting. But when they sought him, Saul, he could not be found. So this is a yet another interesting secretive, is Saul being humble kind of moment? Or is it that Saul is reluctant to receive his responsibilities? Because even though he's been given a new heart and the Lord has verified the choice with his spirit entering him, it's still a kingdom he's being given with the enemy at the gates. In fact, we read how he is found, verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So I was just thinking about this. Oh, you know, I imagine like a wedding reception. Woohoo! Saul, what are you doing behind the presence? <laughs> what are you doing under the table? <laughs> He's hiding. <laughs> and how interesting, it takes divine intervention to point him out. <laughs> Yet another divine seal of approval. This is the man I have appointed. <laughs> Met with an equally bewildering, foreboding sign, Saul's hiding even before he's king. What's the deal here? And the author may just want to highlight those red flags again, that indeed, this wasn't a good sign that Saul was hiding. And we read again, like we read at the beginning of last week's chapter, verse 23, 
Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Again, not that the Bible doesn't like tall people, but every other person noted for their height in the Bible means bad news for Israel. But this also means he stands out. When he walks into a room, you see him. He's got a little bit of charisma. And then it's official here in verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the prophets, uh, told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Now, we just read through that quickly, but try to imagine the emotions and feelings of everybody there. Such emotion, and probably such different emotions for all those involved. For the people, they had their king that they wanted. For Saul, maybe he's overwhelmed, a little fearful. He's been hiding. He's been keeping his selection from God as a secret from loved ones. And for Samuel, he's got to feel weighed down. Dread. Maybe a tiny bit of reprieve, knowing full well that that he's no longer the central leadership figure, but also he knows full well that this is not God's will for Israel. And in fact, knowing what a king for Israel will lead to. He stated back in in chapter 8 that the king for Israel will be a taker. He'll take everything. It'll mean ultimately enslavement of the people with everything they produce, including their children being taken in service ultimately for the king. Nevertheless, the Lord has chosen Saul. Samuel Give Saul all the duties and the rights of the kingship. He gave him the proverbial owner's manual. He sent everyone home. Here's the point. The ball is now in Saul's court. The ball is in the court of the king. (laughs) And I feel that the people have made their bed, and now they're going to have to sleep in it. But God has also made the most perfect bed possible. (laughs) He's given Saul a new heart. He's given Saul the wisdom and guidance of Samuel. We have the best case possible for Israel right now for its king considering the circumstances. Of course, the very best scenario would be for Israel to have remained in sole authority through a judge. (laughs) All things considered, Saul is the best possible situation. He was appointed by God who had conceded and considered Israel's demands And we do see the potential for hope here. The ending dialogue on this episode says here in verse 26 and 27, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, that is Saul, held his peace. Now, for me, this just solidifies the fact that Saul was a man touched by, moved by God, that he was, he was right-hearted in these moments. We see Saul exercise peace, not using his newfound power for evil means or retaliation. You want to bring me any gift? (laughs) This will not be the heart of Saul here in a few chapters. Saul will rather show jealousy and horrible misuse and abuse of his power as he begins to hunt David, as the people want him over Saul. For now, we must know this, that we have a king who shows up and sinners. 
God shows up in the lives of sinners and friends. I'm one of those sinners. He shows up in my life and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, He has offered me His kingdom. And furthermore, His divine grace has so touched my heart and changed my life that I might even receive that kingdom. And the haunting truth is this, that the ball is in my court. I don't mean it this way, that it's all on me to remain a believer. (laughs) But I do mean it this way, if I'm not careful to remain yielded, to remain dependent and abiding in Christ, if I'm not careful to heed the warnings in Scripture, see what Christ says in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. (laughs) I need to heed those words so that through faith I am kept. Think about what Peter says. I am, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded through faith. That's the kicker. Faith can be translated as fidelity or trust in God. Every day will I remain yielded, trusting in God's ways over my ways. In those temptations where I, like Saul, here only three chapters later, will I seek to do things my way or stay yielded to God's way? There are always chances for forgiveness, 70 times 7. But we need to take consideration of Saul's life here and see the painful reality that that here he is, a believer, right-hearted, exercising rightfully expressed reservation, realizing the weight of the kingdom is on his shoulders, exercising mercy to folks who already doubt him. And we need to take consideration of where the record shows where he's going to end up. And as the ball is in his court to choose to do good or choose to do evil, to choose to stay faithful and true to God or to choose to misuse his power, so the ball is in your court, in my court. We must choose daily to sacrifice our kingdom for his kingdom. We must choose daily to be living sacrifices to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. It seems like we were told to pray that. We must choose to recognize that apart from Him, we can do nothing. We must choose to take every thought captive to Christ. And by God's grace and His Spirit and His mercy and His power, may we strive to enter the rest that He promises us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we read about Saul and we are soberly reminded of decisions we make daily. Father, your, your apostle, Lord Jesus, your brother, James, tells us that whenever we give in to sin, it, it eventually leads to something that none of us want. Death. Many of us are exercising our freedom in Christ. We have to choose to present ourselves to sin so that we might be captive by it or to present ourselves to righteousness. Father, I hope none of us are 
doing a little bit of sinning on the side, and we know it, but we're thinking that it's not going to lead anywhere bad. Father, would you use these words today, convict us, so that we might repent, that we might offer ourselves to you for forgiveness and offer ourselves to you out of sacrificial obedience and say, Lord Jesus, have your way. Please, may I not do my way any longer. Because, Father, these are sobering warnings you give us. You don't tell us to stop sinning, to rob us from joy, but to spare us from harm. Because one small sin leads to another sin, and those sins add up to lead to even more sinning until eventually it's out of our hands. And Lord, may it not be that your Spirit leaves us because we're neglecting you so much that we push you into silence, because what would be the point anyways if we never listen? Help us to listen. Help us to stay yielded. Help us to remain in the vine, to abide in you. And may you abide in us. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for these sobering warnings today. We take them as another token of your grace to remind us of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.